English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Omcast. My name is Dom. As one half of the Omcast, I'm joined by Tom. Say hello, Tom. Hello. So we now live in a world full of sequels, prequels, remakes and reboots. And we understand that sometimes life gets in the way and you're not always going to be able to catch up before a new one comes out. With that in mind, we're here to discuss our thoughts on the highs and lows of some of the biggest franchises in cinema history before we find out if the new one is worth seeing. This week, we begin our retrospective on the films of Quentin Tarantino before the release of the upcoming Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To begin this Grant rewatch, we're going to be talking about the director's first three films, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. Yeah. Yeah. That so was this a vlog is... this week, wasn't it? Yes. It was... <laughs> <laughs> this is very different from what we usually do. This is yeah. The app. So we, we're actually sort of... We're doing a Grant rewatch, but we're doing it not in a in the sense that this is a series of films. It is the, the films of a particular director. But I think more so than any other director, I feel like he he has become a genre and a series unto himself in yeah. terms of Tarantino movies. Mm-hmm. And there's buzz and excitement around the new Tarantino movie. Yeah. Um, and there are other directors who like similar thing, like when Spielberg puts a new movie out or something like that, but they're not as prolific as... Sorry, they're more prolific than Tarantino. Yeah. Tarantino, like this is his... Ninth film coming up, which yeah. would be. Um, but the, I would say that he's he he's a quite an influential writer as well because he's done one of my favourite films ever is True Romance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so we just we're focusing just on the movies mm. that he's directed, the Quentin Tarantino films. Yeah, exactly. But that's not to say that there aren't other ones out there. So there's um, Natural Born Killers, Natural Born Killers, True Romance mm-hmm. from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. What else is there? Is that it? Oh, fuck. Um, I don't know. But yeah, there are, there are a bunch more, but we're going to be primarily focusing on the other, well, the main nine. Yeah. With references to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we go right back to the very beginning mm-hmm. and we saw, we watched this week Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, the classic. It, it feels like what I always get every time I watch Reservoir Dogs, I love how sort of, student filmy it feels yeah that's it, exactly what i was about to say it feels like something he's literally out of film school and he's just like grabbed a bunch of mates and a camera and mm-hmm. they've all just got the same outfit on because that's the all they, that's can, all they afford. can afford it's all they've got that's similar yeah it's like does everyone have a suit they've worn to a funeral before yeah right yeah. wear that um like we're going to use my dad's car i've got a mate who knows that has got a warehouse that we can use yeah it's my dad's warehouse yeah and they've just they've cobbled something together but the strength of it has always been tarantino's strength and it's the writing it's just the dialogue is just phenomenal in reservoir dogs it's brilliant and that's i would say with most of almost all of tarantino's films it's not so much like the story itself and the actual the writing of the film, it's always the dialogue for me. Yeah. Because you can tell, like True Romance again, for example, is is directed by Tony Scott, mm. who gives it a different sort of visual flair. But at the same time, the dialogue is what's so, so strong about it. Yeah. The way that those performances are put across. And it's like, you, you know that it's a Tarantino because... You're like, oh, it's Gary Oldman. Yeah. And it's all these really cool people that are in there. So it's Gary Oldman playing against type. It's, um, oh, fucking hell, I've forgotten his name. 
Christopher Walken mm. playing too heavily too type. Yeah. You know, and Christian Slater's in it, who's super cool. And, yeah. And, and, but yeah. But going back to Reservoir Dogs, the strength of the dialogue in this mm. is definitive for yeah. Tarantino. Yeah, and it's, he's got this really, like, it's a unique blend that he's sort of come up with that has now become quintessentially Tarantino, and you can only describe it as Tarantino dialogue in that it is both heightened and, like, super cool and no one would ever say that, yeah. and at the same time super realistic and really down-to-earth. Yeah. Like, there are certain conversations they have. Like, the opening of the movie is these guys all sitting around a table and they have this discussion about tipping and, like, and what, what the ins and outs of why you should or shouldn't tip. Yeah. And it's quite a, like, what's interesting about it is that, like, in most crime movies, if there's a group of criminals sat around, they're going to be talking about the crime they're about to commit and they're just bad guys. But he makes these bad guys have normal conversations, like normal people. Yeah. And that's how he gets you into knowing who everyone mm-hmm. is rather than have them like sat there planning the heist or anything like that, which is what yeah. would, a normal movie would do. And that's that's the thing. And it, it's it's the intelligence of drawing those characters together and making them relatable so early. Yeah. By having them just have a breakfast conversation. Yeah. Because at that point, you don't know what's happening. No, you don't know the, the you don't know anything about it other than I mean maybe you would have seen a trailer or whatever, but you, all you know is that these are some guys you, they don't seem to know each other very well and they just they have this debate about whether yeah. go, because it's Mr Mr Pink isn't it who's yeah. played by Steve Buscemi yeah doesn't want to tip the waitress at the diner and the thing is like we've had people of I think everyone can relate to those sort of conversations because <laughs> you've always got that one friend that's like no nah, well I don't because and you're like, just fucking do it. Yeah, it's immediately a relatable thing. It's yeah. like immediately, and they, he does a really similar thing in Pulp Fiction as well, and let's jump ahead too much. But when they're having the conversation about the Royale cheese and, yeah. and all that, and the stuff to do with McDonald's and Burger King, it's like, everyone yeah. knows what that, that is. It's immediately relatable. Even though they yeah. are these heightened, like, gangster characters who are just living in this ridiculous world yeah. that we have no access to, that you get on board with them straight away yeah. by having these really down-to-earth, mundane conversations. And yeah, I love it. I love yeah. it. And I get that's what we'll get to that in Pulp Fiction. But one thing that I, when you were saying about the student film sort of look and feel yeah, to yeah. it, the one thing that I always get from Reservoir Dogs is it feels very theatrical. Yeah. It feels very much like a play. Yeah. In, but in a, in a really odd way. Yeah, and people have done it as plays. It's the kind of thing that, like, I'm sure there's, like, almost every... I was going to say, you definitely did that as a play when you were drama you definitely pitched for it <laughs> no didn't i didn't i didn't but what i did i did do once actually i did you i had the um the torture scene given to me as an audition piece brilliant i did the i did i think i did both versions of it i did the version where i was the cop and i did the version where i was michael manson's character yeah um but yeah that's besides the point but i'm sure there is like every if you're an a-level drama teacher and it's like how many times have you had to watch a bunch of uh, like lads do oh. reservoir dogs <laughs> like you must have seen it a thousand times yeah. because it's just reservoir dogs in chicago yeah <laughs> there's nothing in between it's dark and edgy and cool yeah it's just like yeah 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 <laughs> and there's going to be that one kid that does the monologue from the killing joke or something you're like oh darren but then there's so much of it like there's another one i hear about that people talk about like some of his monologues are perfect like audition pieces yeah but a lot of people use the christopher walken monologue from um pulp fiction yeah as the audition piece i'm like yeah obviously yeah um but anyway yeah because that's the thing with it is that he goes right he's got no budget whatsoever all he's Mm -hmm. got is just this group of actors 
and some of them weren't even his first choices. Like he, he ended up making compromises or like he wanted, so he, he originally wanted Christopher Walken to play Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Michael Madsen's part, but Christopher Walken turned it down. Yeah. And so he ended up with Michael Madsen, but Michael Madsen is like a defining performance from him. Yeah. And like, I can't think of it being Christopher Walken now, but that's yeah, again. And that's one of the strange things. It's, and we're jumping ahead to Pulp Fiction again, but Michael Madsen turned down, Vincent Vega. Yeah, because he was doing Wyatt Because Earth. he was doing Wyatt Earth, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which he has then said is like one of the biggest regrets of his career. Yeah. But then that has spawned onto something else about having this Vega Brothers Yeah, that's the whole thing. Film. Yeah. And you're just like, there's so much involved in this. And like, as much as... Like, I'm going to say this, like, I'm going to top load this pretty early. I'm going to say that Tarantino is one of the greatest directors and probably writers of our generation for certain areas of film. Yeah. People, there aren't that many other directors of that generation who are putting out so many iconic things. That's not to say that I disagree with a lot of some of the, some of the sort of stuff that he does, hmm. but I would say that he is like, like a generational sort of phenomena. Yeah, because everybody f- who is aware of cinema from the early nineties to now is going to have been involved in fairly heavily in some sort of Tarantino film. They Everyone would have got involved seen in something. something. Yeah, exactly. So even if it's someone, that, if you're not even a big film fan and you haven't followed along and watched every single one as they come out, you would have at least seen Pulp Fiction. Or you yeah. at least would have been aware of yeah. you know, Kill Bill when it came out or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. He's a really divisive director as well. Yeah. Because I know people, over, this, over the course of this week, people have sort of spoken to me um, and said... Oh, how have you found so and so? And because I've said oh, we're doing the Tarantino films next, mm-hmm. and then people are like, "Oh, that's brilliant!" Yeah, I haven't seen this one, but I have seen this one, and I've not seen this, and I have yeah. seen this. And then someone I spoke to was like, "I haven't seen any of them." Uh, one person I said, spoke to said that Jackie Brown was their favorite Tarantino film out of all the other ones because mm. it's not a cartoon. Someone else said that I prefer this film to that film, and it's amazing how this one guy can have so many different viewpoints. Yeah. Because a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like certain director because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or I don't like Spielberg because his films are all a bit schmaltzy. And I don't like this because it's all a bit this. And it's... But when you, when you get somebody like Tarantino that constantly reinvents what sort of film they're putting yeah. out, but with their own voice. Yeah, and that's what's interesting, I think, that the way that we've broken these up is really interesting to see how he changes. Because yeah. he, I think it actually quite neatly falls into the categories that we put it into because we've got these early Tarantino films where he was really sort of defining his voice and they're all about they're all crime stories around LA contemporary crime stories in LA yeah those are the one sort of common thing throughout Mm -hmm. all three of these movies and then we get into the second act where they are more cartoonish and they're more like grindhouse and a little bit you know over the top and crazy which is the Kill Bill films and Death Proof yeah and then we get into the third stage, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks' time, where he gets into these, like, long, lavish, like, historical, alternate history dramas, yeah. where he, like, he has a really particular subject matter that he wants to delve into and put his own spin on, yeah. which is Inglourious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. Yeah. But they're all, they're all clearly, there is, you can draw a line in between each one of those phases and go, now he's doing something different, now he's doing something different. Yeah. But it still has a feeling about it. But yeah, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Well, no, but I um, mean to to introduce a three part yeah. podcast is I think it's we're doing a fairly bad job. Yeah, because 
they, they yeah, readers are gonna sort of see each different tone of voice that he's put out in yeah. those special ways. Yeah, I mean, like, like I say, like the he kind of sets out his story a little very early on with this with Reservoir Dogs because Reservoir Dogs is the most stripped back mm. cops and robbers drama yeah. of all of them, and that is like then a theme that continues on is about who you can trust, trusting the cops, not trusting the cops, loyalty amongst criminals and all yeah. that. And those are things that are prevalent, not only in Reservoir Dogs, but also in Pulp Fiction and in Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. It's just continuous. It's, one, it's a theme that runs throughout the whole this whole trilogy that we're looking at yeah. at the moment. Um, but yeah, Reservoir Dogs is, is it in its purest form because it's literally, the whole plot of Reservoir Dogs is these guys go and do a bank robbery, which happens off screen during the credits, mm-hmm. which is a great little touch. And again, speaks to the fact of how limited his budget was. But also at the same time, it shows the what's important in that film. Yeah, it's not the action. No. He's not, he's not making an action movie. He's, uh, that's what I love. He's is making when, a character film. That's what I love is when they do do the... Um, they have little cutbacks to what to what happened. Yeah. And even things like that. It's like they don't really get, can't really afford to do a big gun chase, so it's a car chase, so it's literally just Steve Buscemi pegging it down the street yeah. with a bunch of guys in cop uniforms. Really quick after. cuts. And At no point do you see Steve Buscemi and the police... In the same shot. In the same shot. <laughs> yeah. Because um, they were clearly not shot on the same day. No. <laughs> um, but that's it, yeah. And it's, it's little things like that that they do to just sort of make it, mm-hmm. to sort of cobble it together. And again, it, he introduces this whole thing of doing things non-linearly. Yeah. So it starts off and it does play out in a straight line to begin with. And then what they he does is that he cuts away from this warehouse where the majority of the movie takes place yeah. and gives you fills you in on the backstories of everybody. Yeah. Um. I think, and this might be slightly controversial, but I think more so than in Pulp Fiction, I think this is the most effective use of that trope yeah, that he has. I agree. In that, because the whole idea of this is that something went wrong with this plot of theirs, and it means that someone in the group is a cop. Yeah. And we don't know, the audience doesn't know who it is. Yeah. And that is because of the way he's done this. And we get that revealed to us, and we get the whole backstory of the cop. But we, do, we get it mid, in the middle of the movie, not at the beginning of the movie. Where a traditional director who wasn't doing this whole splicing around with time thing would have put it up the front and it would have been a gritty crime drama from the point of view of that particular character. Yeah. He does it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so it means that we are on board with people like the Harvey Cartel character who really hooks into the cop. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm bearing the lead. The cop is Tim Roth. Mr. Orange. Mr. Orange. Um and yeah, and that is a turn. And the, the fact that he has that right in the middle, like I say, is that's the best, most effective use of his playing with the time frame mm-hmm. in all of his films, I think. Yeah. And I think, yeah, when you, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Like, we've only got a limited amount of time that we're going to talk about these because otherwise we'll be here all night. Yeah. But there are points in it. And the, so the, when you see Mr. Blonde's flashback, for example, mm. It's not particularly gripping, but it shows so much. Yeah. And it's that's one of the things that you I tend to find with Tarantino is that it might what might initially come across as like a really mundane scene is actually giving a lot away. Yeah, and because it, and like it becomes super important later on when they yeah. have the final showdown with nice guy Eddie played by Chris Penn, Cal Penn. Is it Cal? No, no it is Chris Penn. I yeah. was thinking Cal Penn is um Cow pen is what you give to kids when they've when they've got a coffin. No, that's cow pole. All oh, right. 
Um, Cowpen is um, Kumar. Um, he, yeah. So when he kicks it, like, because Mister Orange tries to sell him on the story that you know, oh, he was going to rip us all off. Yeah. And then we know where Nice Guy Eddie is coming from, going, no, 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 I know where this this guy's backstory, mm-hmm. and we're entirely with him because we know it all as well because yeah. we saw it. So it's interesting that he chooses to do it to certain characters but not others. Yeah. So that one is important just purely for that bit of dialogue and that scene at the end. It's not important about Steve Buscemi's backstory. No. So you don't see it. No. Same with Mr. White. It doesn't really matter. His backstory is what we're watching in the movie. So it, it, when it cuts to, you know, after the credits, it's him and Mr. Orange escaping. Mr. Orange is screaming in the back of the car because he's been shot. Yeah. And that is where they have this like bonding, like brothers in arms moment, and that's his backstory. That's what they're motivating throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, we've seen it, so we don't need to cut away and see what happened to him before. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's honestly, it's like a, it is a screenwriting masterclass. It is. It's yeah. Reservoir Dogs, and it's just. But I don't know what I don't want to labour on it too much. I think we do need to sort of move on and talk about pop fiction. Yeah, we will talk about it. But one thing I do want to say is like I've said to. Everybody that I've spoken to this week, they've said, well, what is your favourite Tarantino film? And every time I've said Reservoir Dogs. Because to me, if if somebody puts down a textbook example of a film mm. and is like, right, this is how a film is going to be. This is, this is an, like you said, textbook example of a great, great film. It doesn't mention about like the narrative or anything like that. It's just how that film is written, put together, scored, and acted. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, you know, it's it's incredible. I mean, yeah, we do face issues like why aren't there any women in that film that aren't servers, and why aren't there any people of color in that film that aren't referred to in the most worst word yeah, that they yeah, can possibly yeah. use, but. When you look at that film from the outset and you go, right, I'm sitting down, I'm watching a film, and you put on Reservoir Dogs, you're like, that's perfect. Yeah. Because yeah. at no point you're going to be like, this is a bad film. There's no. nothing about that film that you can... There are parts where you're like, this is too violent, or they're using too many sort of inappropriate words. Mm. But at the same time, it's just a textbook example of an incredible film to yeah. me. And it just blows yeah. my mind every time I see it. And I'm like, oh, this is just fucking almost perfect yeah but then pulp fiction <laughs> pulp fiction comes along yeah <laughs> and as you referred to it earlier it's quentin tarantino's magnum opus almost it, yeah it's like this is what he's been building to this is like everything that he wants out of a movie distilled yeah. down into this pure like and it like even the title itself is just like pulp fiction it's just and they have the little thing that comes up at the, at the top explaining what definition of pulp is yeah it's like just like crap like dime store like cheap you know um stories that were printed on crap paper because they were just like like comic books and yeah yeah pulp fiction yeah that's it and it's like well this is what this movie is and it's these yeah they're what's pulp fiction is weird and it's difficult to talk about because it is really like three interconnected movies all happening at the same time yeah um and he again plays with the narrative the structure of it so things happen out of sequence Mm. But it some it works perfectly. Like it, it's a complete, it's a balancing act. But it just it works, fucking spot on. Yeah. Exactly by placing things the way he's placed them. Have you ever seen the cut of that film in no. linear? 
I've heard about that, but I don't yeah. know if it would work. We had it. Uh, we watched it. Well, me and a few friends of mine watched it at college because mm. we hacked it together. Yeah. And it's fucking brilliant. It would still work, I guess. But it I just still like... works. And it, it really, really does. But then there are points when you're just like, it's more effective in the non-linear way yeah. because you see what happens to Vince. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, shit, okay, that's happened to Vince. And then, because not so much of it, they're not really that, like, dramatically interspersed because it isn't like this 36 Tales about Springfield. No. It's it's not about, like, a fucking feather floating to the next person. It's yeah. not the circle of life sequence. It's literally people that have crossed paths within this small group of criminals. Yeah, it's basically, it's it's the the one connecting thing is Marcellus Wallace. Yeah. Is the crime lord who sits at the top of this, like, this underground crime, you know, organisation within LA. And he's played by Ving Rames and he's the boss. And yeah. everyone's lives, so you have... Vincent Vega played by um, John Travolta and mm-hmm. Jules, well, I don't know what his surname is, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and they work for him. And then there's also the other main character is Butch, played by um, Bruce, Willis. Bruce Willis, who is a boxer who's paid off by Vince, by um, Marcellus Wallace to take a fall. Yeah. And that's it. Those That's the reason their lives in set is because they've all had connections to this one mob boss. And everything just spreads out from there. Yeah. And you find out about the mob boss's wife, which is um, Mia. Mia Wallace, played by... Uma Thurman. Why do I keep blanking on people's names? Fine. I'm sorry. That's I what I'm here for. Um, and that's it. But it all just spreads out from there. And they have connections to one another. And they, like you say, the story picks up at different points. Yeah. But again, it's just fucking brilliant. It's just like there are so many scenes in it that are just, and I think it's probably the most quotable one. It's the most iconic one of his movies. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would agree. I think I still. I mean, I still prefer Reservoir Dogs mm. because I do think Pulp Fiction is too long. But at the same time, I think Jackie Brown's too long, and I think that's probably one of his best films. Just because it's so totally different, but we'll get mm. to that in a minute. Yeah. But with Pulp Fiction, it is incredible because it is the way that it all links together and you're like, okay, it all culminates around Marcellus Wallace, who isn't actually in it that much. No. He's probably only got 20, 25 lines of dialogue, maybe. Yeah. He's not really that much. And the way that the characters interact with another is fairly tertiary. Yeah. But it's more about the connections that are spreading out from yeah. Marcellus yeah. as well. So it's like... He's the centre. Then we go to Vince. What's Vince's story with X? Yeah. What's Vince's story with Y? And how does Y connect with Z, which is attached to Jules? Z's dead, baby. Well, yeah. Z's dead. That's a bad analogy, but <laughs> a good a good quote. Um, but, oh, fuck. No, I don't know. Because to me, the thing with Pulp Fiction is that because it sort of jumps around a little bit, it never feels like it's going on for too long. Because mm. it feels like every time it's like, Okay, I'll spend some time, and then it just changes halfway through and goes. Right now, we're going to spend some time with Butch. Yeah, and we've got a whole new story in here, and we will come back to Vince and um, Jules. But like Vince and Jules are just like two of the most watchable, yeah. like funny. Like I want, I love spending any time with them. So it, like the whole opening of the movie, after we get the initial bit with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, is we get this whole sequence where it's yeah, Vince and Jules going to do the um, going to take out the kids. Yeah. And they have the whole conversation about Burger King and McDonald's and all that whole thing. And then they have the conversation about the foot massage. 
which again yeah. is the, exactly the same thing he did with the Reservoir Dogs, which is making them super relatable. Yeah. And then, but in this one, he telegraphs it even more because there's a point where before they go into the apartment and start intimidating people and being arseholes, they go, hey, let's get into character. Yeah. It's like literally they're just like, they're talking about putting on characters and there's a lot, again, there's a lot of that in all three of these movies. Yeah. There are instances of like characters acting within the movie Mm -hmm. to obtain a certain, and so it's the idea is that he lets us see the characters behind the masks. Yeah. That otherwise other movies, lesser movies would just have you see the face value of them. Yeah. You would just see... Or it's done for comic relief. Yeah. So you would just see, like, the, the hitman going in there to kill... Or, like, stuff like... I think about, like, um... What's his name? Shane Black. Yeah. Like, when they... When, like, the guy in Iron Man 3... Yeah. ...makes a little comment about yeah. knowing how long something... It's just for comic relief, like you said. That's yeah. the one time it gives him a little bit of yeah. character. Tarantino does an entire movie about that guy. Exactly. <laughs> Tarantino is, like, defines that character by those choices which like you say if played in the wrong way come off as just a joke yeah but in this it defines the character which is one of the issues that i have later on Mm. is with pulp fiction is that it there is this curve that fairly gradual but at the same time it becomes quite steep Mm. where it goes from being really grounded and interesting to quite silly okay well where does it get silly because like it's the first point when uh, when Jules first gives the speech, yeah, and you're like, "That's great," but it's that bit afterwards when, which you see towards the end of the film, where he's talking about divine intervention, yeah, and it's just the point, the fact that that point keeps getting laboured, and you're like, "This was brilliant before because you were just two guys just schlepping about doing your job, going around day to day, and then there was this accident, you blew somebody's head off, and then all this other shit went on, and then." he's just won't shut up about it and like john travolta does a great part of it yeah but you're like this is taking a big turn and we need to stop having these like i, gr- I, know, I get I... it because and it's the same the part that frustrates me as well is the i get it because i love noir things like i love noir books i love noir films like the maltese falcon and chinatown are fucking great examples of these things but when you're in a film that is two and a half hours long and can be quite slow, when Butch first gets in the taxi... Yeah, that scene does and just like, a bit too long. Gosh, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Just move on. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. I'd, like I say, I, I'm all right with the, the stuff with Jules and, and Vincent like when they start talking about divine intervention. And you're right, they do labour that point, but I think it's all right because it kind of it forces an interesting conversation between the two of them. Yeah. And it forces them to... And it's like... So what I like about the pair of them is that they they're quite sort of intelligent and articulate, and they'll yeah. go, they'll concede points to one another. So okay, yeah. all right, yeah, fair enough. But what about this? And like I can watch those two do that all yeah. day long. So I like if they're talk, they're talking about divine intervention and like what you think God came down and stopped those bullets. That's what you're saying. Yes, yeah. right. That's ridiculous. I don't. I, yes, it's peculiar. I'll grant you that. Yeah, but I, I love all that. And I love that it. is brilliant dialogue, but it's laboured too long. No, I don't, yeah, I, yeah, it didn't. And I think it's because it's so much dense dialogue mm. in so much space. Yeah, I guess so. That it gets to a point and you're like, to quote spaced, skip to the end. Skip to the end. I guess so, but I don't know. Yeah, for me, like, I don't, I'm happy to just watch them do yeah. their thing. And, and I don't want them to skip to the end because I want to just yeah. spend as much time with those two as I can. 
And the same can be said of other pairings in there, like the same with like the way Vincent and um, Mia yeah. are great. They have conversations about nothing, really. That was fucking... That, for me, dist- the whole Vincent and Mia situation mm. from start to finish defines why that film is so great. Yeah. Everything else around it is almost ancillary. Okay. There's the scene when um, Winston Wolf oh. is drinking his coffee. Yeah. And John Travolta says... A please would be nice. A please would be nice. And that that section of speech that he comes out with afterwards is fucking excellent. Yeah. And I'm like, this is what distills this film, but sometimes it just felt yeah, like it dragged a little bit. I know what you mean. But like, yeah, to me, oh, there's so much of it. Like, there are little bits and pieces that I would cut here and there maybe, mm-hmm. but I think more of them come from the Butch storyline than anything else. Yeah. I think they're in the like say the cab sequence where he has the the spanish yeah that doesn't really add much we never see her again it doesn't really matter and then his his girlfriend is just really annoying and not particularly good actress i'm afraid no she's she's one of the weakest links along with tarantino himself as jimmy fuck's sake um because he always puts himself in these movies and he's he has a cameo both in pulp fiction and in reservoir dogs um, but his one in Pulp Fiction is definitely more egregious and well, it's, more It's absolutely the worst. It's absolutely the worst. It's just wrote himself into it and decided that he needed to say the N-word over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that I'm like, you wrote and directed this film. Despite the fact that he then has his character be married to a black woman. Yeah. It's really strange. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Whatever. yeah. <laughs> and like, we'll get into this another time, but to, probably in Django. Yeah. But... um his use of phraseology is uh, one thing that does frustrate me. Mm. But at the same time, like I do understand I'm not on like the Spike Lee side. I'm not on the Quentin side. I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But at the same time, it is like you say, it is quite egregious. The one thing that I did like about Butch and his lady. Yeah. Was when he turns up on the chopper. Yeah. Is the fact that she's like, oh, where did you get the bike? It's not a bike, it's a chopper. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a funny line. But at the same time, like when he gets annoyed with her and she gets upset, the immediate turn yeah. from Butch's yeah. turning up on a chopper, yeah. having just killed a guy yeah. and had all this sort of shit go on, or two people, and his immediate turn is that he's, I've forgotten her name. That formed some, some French. And um, and then he calls up to her and she's like, I'll get our bags. And he's like, the fucking bags don't matter. And then she comes down and then she's a bit upset because he yeah. just keeps shouting, shouting at her. But when you actually see her get upset, his visible turn then to turn into start looking after again. Yeah. And he does it like, yeah, there, there is some, again, it's one of those things where he manages to make it a bit more relatable, a bit more realistic. Like yeah. when he flips out. So basically the storyline with Butch is that, yeah, he's done, he's done a number, he's done over uh, Marcellus by putting bets on himself and he's going to clean up, take all the uh, money from the bookies and they're going to run away and escape him and this girl. Yeah. But he asked her to get all his stuff, which included this gold watch, which is very, very important and got handed down to him from his father. He finds out she didn't bring it and then he fucking loses the plot yeah. and starts smashing shit up and he like picks up the TV and throws it and it gets like quite scary. Yeah. And she's like cowering in the corner. But then they do the thing that you wouldn't expect them to do, which is then they let him calm down yeah. and rationalize and go, it's okay. You didn't know how important it was. I never told you. Yeah. You're not a mind reader, are you? 
She goes, no, I'm, look, I'm sorry. And the fact that he took the time to allow yeah. that to happen makes Butch a much more human, realistic character. Yeah. Because, like, in written... It's still a piece of shit. Oh, yeah, it's still, like, well... It's still a boring behaviour, but... Yeah, it's... But it's a very... But, like... Doesn't matter. No, his dad... <laughs> no, his dad held that uncomfortable hunk of metal up his ass yep. for three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, I, know, I, know. I, I know. I know. I know. I know. But yeah, he's, he's, he's very stressed. He's very. He's very upset. He loves me, really. You didn't hear, did he? No, but he's he's, he's screaming and shouting at somebody. Yeah, and then he and calms throwing himself, shit around. And then the they room. give him the opportunity. He calms himself down. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like it's still appalling behaviour, but it's not the worst thing that he could have done. But no. it's still. No, exemplifies true, look, toxic relationships. Yeah, but what like the fact that yeah he calms down and rationalizes and just and sort of pff, that wouldn't usually happen in the movie. No. Usually, what would happen is they'd he'd, storm out, he'd storm the out, door. and then he'd just go off to get the watch himself. Yeah, and that would be the end of it. But the fact that they actually took the time to have him realize that he's yeah. being a dick and chill out yeah. is again another little bit of humanization that. Tarantino's put in there. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think is so excellent with Tarantino again, is that he shows these human moments and he shows these in-between moments mm. that would always, would normally be skipped. Yeah. So he sees, like, so over the journey of Butch going from the motel back to the house, Yeah, you see a lot of that journey. He's doing it in that piece of shit Honda Civic, Mark I Honda Civic. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, which appears in the next film and um he does it in that but then you see him sort of cool down a bit yeah. even more then he gets to the house and he's like okay right let's look around for it and he's like huh gonna do some pop tarts Fucking which is just like stop- a weird thing that again you would never see in a film which is what makes it so more so much more intelligent true speaking of the pop tarts yeah now, where do you stand on this? Because I've heard it said two different ways. So what happens is he puts the Pop-Tarts in, the Pop-Tarts pop up as... And basically what's happened is uh, Vincent has been waiting for him with a gun. Yeah. Vincent went to the bathroom. Yeah. Left his gun on the side. Butch comes in, picks up the gun, the Pop-Tarts pop up. Yeah. And he shoots Vincent. Now, did he... Was he premeditating about to do that anyway? Mm-hmm. Or did the pops up startle him and he did it by accident? Because I've heard I've heard people argue both sides. I know what I think. Um, if it was anyone else other than Tarantino, I would say it would be the pop that startled it. But because it's Tarantino, I know that he's exploiting that convention to make people question it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. I think, yeah, I think he had every intention of shooting him. Yeah. Like, and the fact that he doesn't react, it's because of his reaction or his lack of reaction afterwards. Yeah. It's not like he's, oh shit, I've just shot someone. He's like, no, yeah, he wants it. Because they, they see that those two have got beef early yeah. on in a tiny, tiny little bit. Which, in all fairness, is fucking brilliant. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's to a point where something else Tarantino said afterwards, and I don't know if I, yeah, even though he said it, I'm like, meh. Mm. Apparently his idea is that Butch is the one who keyed Vincent's car. Okay. Immediately after that exchange. Right. He went outside and keyed Vincent's car. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Could happen. 
Could happen. Sure. I yeah, mean, why not? Listen, JK, if JK Rowling can say all the shit she wants on Twitter about things in Hogwarts. Yeah, true. Then um, Tarantino can say what he wants. Um, but yeah, one thing he's never confirmed, though, and it's one thing that I think we should probably mention just a little bit before we move on, mm. is the briefcase. Yeah. So the MacGuffin of Pulp Fiction, for a lot of it anyway, is um, this briefcase that is that they go to pick up from um, the guys. Brett. Brett and the, um, and the flock of seagulls. Um, <laughs> Brett, Marvin and someone else. Yeah. And they pick it up, open it up, and you just get this orange glow coming out of it. Golden glow. Golden glow. Close it and that's it. And then at some, right at the end of the movie as well, he shows it, or what's in there, to Tim Roth, who's about to hold up this diner, and it's enough to make him go, that's beautiful, and then walk away. Yeah. And he's never explained what it is. The prevailing fan theory that a lot of people love is this idea that it's Marcellus Wallace's soul? soul. And that is based on what it is. It's beautiful. And then also the fact that in a couple of scenes, we we see it from the back of Marcellus's head. Yeah. And on the back of his head, he's got this big band-aid. Yeah. It's plaster on the back of his head. So everyone's like, that's where his soul was taken from. Yeah. And his soul is in the suitcase. Yeah. I think that's bollocks. <laughs> I think it's bollocks. I just think it's a MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin. It's just a MacGuffin. He doesn't it's know like what it Repo is. Man. But I like that he went to the effort of like, because he's not just like, he wrote it as a MacGuffin and that's it. He went to the effort of, I'm going to make it a whole thing where we show it to people and they don't, we never mention it and they have yeah. the glow on them and all the rest of it. Is that what I think it is? Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. What is it? And they're like, to a point of like Amanda Plummer at the end, he's like screaming, God damn it, what is it? What is it? Like that. And it's like, we all want to know. But he, like you yeah. say, I think it's just him being the massive cinephile that he is yeah. and knowing how movies work, going, right, I need a MacGuffin. I'm going to have the ultimate MacGuffin that no one's ever going to know what it is. Yep. And he's got to play with that convention. And that's what he does. And yeah, I think it's great. Uh, yeah, I think so too. It exemplifies me exactly like you say how big of a cinephile mm. Tarantino is and how well he knows how to structure these things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Can we also talk about, quickly, talk about Uma Thurman yeah. being 24 in this and then... Jesus. Yeah. She was 24 in this and then watching Stranger Things 3 this year and seeing Maya Hawke. That's an uncanny resemblance between those two. I yeah. mean, I know one's mother and one's daughter, but at the same time... Yeah, shit. That is a... That. Frightening resemblance. Fuck, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, 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 you're right. So for those who don't know, the, the, if anyone's seen Stranger Things 3 this year, there's a new character in there called Robin. Yeah. And she's played by Maya Hawke, who is Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's daughter. Yeah. And yeah, now you say it, she's like spitting her image of her mum when she was in Pulp Fiction sort of age. Yeah, yeah shit, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. It's mad. It is mad. <sighs> and it's only because when I was watching it, I was scrolling through something on my phone... And a picture of Robin came up saying something about what her surname is. Mm. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, that is an uncanny resemblance yeah. between mother and daughter. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many fan theories about the whole thing and like things you can read into it. Like, there's that, yeah, like we talked about the, the um, what's it, the briefcase theory. Like, the real reason, again, is that they just put a plaster on the back of his head because he's got a really bad scar on the back of his head yeah um big names yeah and i thought it would be distracting and yeah. that's it there's other things like they talked about how 
the fact that Bruce Willis is like the 80s action hero mm-hmm. and he kills the 70s cool action hero who's John Travolta. Yeah. And like that's like some sort of like idea about cinema and how things moved on. Yeah. But then when you think about the fact that Tarantino never really wanted... Travolta wasn't his first choice. He was going to be Michael Madsen. Yeah. It doesn't quite stack up. And the same with like the dancing scene. Yeah. People are like, oh, you wrote that in there because you had John Travolta. It's like, I, that was always there. I didn't know mm-hmm. I was going to get John Travolta. No. But then that, again, that scene is just fucking brilliant yeah who else could have performed that scene as well as john travolta no one no like i will say as well i think it's an amazing performance from travolta it's mm-hmm. so against everything else that he's ever done either yep. before or after and he just he yeah he's just cool and but like strung out and fucks the whole, yeah. the whole way through it but he's just like yeah and he's just his attitude and i've never seen it before or since from him no he's never played a character like it he's just he's really like ridiculous over the top John Travolta yeah or cheesy 70s Saturday Night Fever guy and then somewhere in the middle he has this we didn't do much in the 80s and this was his no this was his research and then after that he does things like Broken Arrow and all that sort of shite yeah (laughs) where he's just like cackling crazy like face off and all that like Mm -hmm. he's crazy dude but he never like this is quite a downplayed subtle performance he's delivering the lines brilliantly yeah and he's just, he's fucking brilliant in this film. He's so good. Yeah, he is wicked. Although, he, and like, well deserved, like, nomination as well. Yeah, he got nominated. Um, Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson. Well. And so I think Uma Thurman did as well. Yeah. But what, what, what I will say about um, Travolta and Vince Vega is that he should never go to the bathroom. No. Because every time he goes to the bathroom in this movie, something fucking horrible happens. <laughs> yep. Um, but that's what happens when you're a heroin addict messes with yeah you. so yeah he goes he goes and try, i love that scene where he's trying to talk himself down from sleeping with mia it's <laughs> one of my favorites it's like no don't be rude drink your drink but drink it quickly <laughs> yeah but so that happens that's when she overdoses which is a very horrific horrifying scene um then he goes um to the bathroom when honey bunny and pumpkin go, are robbing the place mm-hmm. because he went to the bathroom, wasn't there to do anything about it. And then the last time he goes to the bathroom at uh, Butch's place and he gets shot because he went to the bathroom. Stop going for a shit all the time. Stop taking heroin. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but yeah, anyway. Messes with your guts. It does. It means you have to shit all the time, which means shit's going to go wrong. So, hey, do you want this? So this is the uh, watch that your dad had. He hid it up his ass for five years. Oh, by the way, he died of dysentery. Do you want it? <laughs> yeah, he'll do. <laughs> anyway right we've got to talk about Jackie Brown yeah Jackie Brown Jackie Brown so after having done these two movies and two of probably the most iconic films yeah and they were like he's a big name now at this point I yeah. think he sort of exploded onto the scene with Reservoir Dogs everyone wanted to work with him which is why when you get to um, Pulp Fiction people like Christopher Walken who turned him down before are like chomping at the bit to work with this mm-hmm. guy because he's amazing Pulp Fiction came out. It won the Palm Door at Cannes. It didn't actually win a lot of Oscars, no. like controversially. I think it like Robert Zemeckis got the director's award that year for Forrest Gump. Yeah, which is a bit. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it's like one. It's between that and the Shawshank Redemption. It was Shawshank like Redemption. The two generic favorite film of all time. Yeah, I know. Which favorite film of all time? Shawshank Redemption, probably, or Forrest Gump. Did you hear what you just said to yourself? No, it's just a generic response that everyone says. True. Which, yeah, I think that's crazy. I think maybe Best Picture, you could say maybe not necessarily, but I think for Best Direction, 
the idea of it not going to Tarantino for Pulp Fiction is crazy. Yeah. But anyway. But yeah, so then coming off the back of that, he's like, world is his oyster. He could do literally anything he wants. And he decides to make Jackie Brown, which is an adaptation of a... Hang on, let me, what was the name of the author? Uh, Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard is the name of the guy who wrote yeah. the book. And it, I think it's called uh, The Rum Punch. Okay. Or something like that. Uh, it's the same guy. He wrote the book for Get Shorty. Oh, really? And he also wrote a lot of the books that the Justified TV show is based on. Oh, uh, okay. So he's had quite a few different adaptations done of his work. I literally watched the first episode of that the other day. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, so he's a fairly well-known um, writer, like novel writer, who's had his work adapted a few times. Um, and that's what Tarantino chose to do, is that he took this book and he basically sort of Tarantino-fied it to a point where even like stuff like the, the main character, Jackie Brown, in the book is a white woman in the movie it's a black woman which changes yeah. the whole thing and he has this whole thing about it being a throwback to black exploitation movies to a point where he cast Pam Greer who was a star of a lot of those movies back in the day yeah and she because, was Foxy Brown yeah because he wanted her to be like because he wanted her originally in Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. he was going to play um, Patricia Arquette's character really? yeah and but he said the reason I didn't cast her is that there's, when um, they're running around looking for the, the uh, medical book Mm-hmm. and um, the drug dealer guy is shouting at her. He goes, there is absolutely no way a bloke could shout like that at Pam Greer. No. And it, she would take it. So I couldn't have her play that part. No, but then he did Jackie Brown, and when he was rewriting it and doing the screenplay, he had her in mind, and it had to be her. Yeah. Which is fair enough, which is cool. Um, But yeah, Jackie Brown, I hadn't seen it until this week. Really? No, this is the first time I've ever seen it. Okay. Um, And I was going to say, this is going to be a hard... A hard turn into sort of untrodden ground for you then yeah i do it's, it's a weird one like there's a reason why i i don't know i feel like for a lot of for, it's a really weird thing because when looking into it there are some people like you've spoken to people this week who say jackie brown is their favorite tarantino movie mm-hmm. but i know a, you know a fair amount of people who would count themselves as tarantino fans who may not have even seen this because yeah. it's just it's the one that kind of gets forgotten about a little bit i think yeah. but I read a headline today mm. that said Jackie Brown is um, the single most underrated Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. Or and there was like um, Jackie Brown deserves significant more, significantly more recognition than it got on release. And Jackie Brown is the most. Is I think the the headline that I kept seeing, so which makes me think it's come from like an aggregate site, mm. is that. Um, Jackie Brown is Quentin Tarantino's most mature work. Yes. Which I would agree with. Yeah, and I, I think I've seen something or a headline about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah. comparing it to Jackie Brown. Saying Excellent. It's, it's his most mature work since Jackie Brown. Brilliant. That's what I've seen. Yeah. Um, which now I have context for, which I didn't have mm-hmm. last week. Which is okay. Um, yeah, I, the thing, I like Jackie Brown, having watched, like I say, watching it for the first time. But I do feel like, yeah, it's the least Tarantino-y yeah. out of all of them. And that is because of the fact that he's adapting something. Mm-hmm. So he's adapting some pre-existing material into a Tarantino movie. Yeah. And he puts his own flair to it and he changes things around by, you know, having his, you know, actors like Samuel Jackson and Pam Greer and doing his thing. Bobby De Niro. Uh, fucking Robert De Niro. Like, but that, stuff like that, like Robert De Niro, I feel like is kind of wasted in a way. Like he's great. 
because he's Robert De Niro. Yeah. But it's like, you've got Robert De Niro. Like, do something better with yeah. him than that. Like, I feel like that part that he plays, because he plays like this guy who's, uh, again, it's all about crime again. Um, and he's like this sort of schlubby ex-con who's just come out of prison who works for Samuel Jackson's character, who's a, a gun dealer. And he's just like sort of stoned and like meh all the time. And he's got a temper on him and loses it at one point. But even that is like sort of shrugs it off. I feel like he could have, I could have seen someone like Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Could have played that part. Mm -hmm. It would have fit him better, I think. I don't know if it, yeah, I think it would have, I think it would have played more to type. Yeah. Because I think seeing, we're so used to seeing De Niro in these big, really powerful, really intense characters. Yeah. That when you get him in something like this where he is really understated and you, and he's quite a quiet guy throughout the whole thing and he's quite respectful, but you, he never really gets his words out. Yeah. And and you can see that as it builds up to the point that where he shoots Bridget Fonda's character twice in broad daylight in a parking lot, yeah. you can see that every time he's trying to say something, she's right there. Yeah. And she's getting at him and getting at him and getting at him. And he's finally just like, you know what? Fuck this. Yeah. And just fucking shoot. And then, he, and then he tells her off when he walks. He's like, see, I fucking, I told you it was here. Yeah. And it's this, you're like, oh my God, I, I didn't expect, I didn't see this no, coming like at when all. That, when I was watching it, like it was, it was happening. I wasn't a hundred percent paying attention. And then I was like, I just heard the gunshots. I was like, shit, hang on. Rewound it. Like, did he, did he just shoot her? Yeah. Cause this is the first, like I say, first time I've seen it. I was like, oh fuck. Okay. Because there are a lot of like long tracking shots and stuff in this yeah. movie where people are just walking from place to place. I feel like it definitely is more of a character study than it is anything else. It's not mm -hmm. as much of a sort of popcorn fun, yeah. snappy dialogue. So I can see why people going into it expecting another Pulp Fiction yeah. would be disappointed. And to a certain extent, I felt I was... Not disappointed is the wrong word, but just it didn't give me the... Tarantino hit I was expecting yeah. do you know what I mean I've come to expect certain things from Tarantino yeah and you it didn't, broader ambitions yeah and it didn't quite fit that but what it did sort of signal to me is that he he can apply his style to a pre-existing thing mm -hmm. and it can work really well which is interesting because something that they're talking about at the moment is that he might be up for directing a Star Trek movie. Yeah. Which up till now, I've never been able to get my head around because I just think of it being a Tarantino version of a Star, of a Star Trek movie. Yeah. But now I've seen him do something more restrained and more because he's restricted by, no, I've got to follow the book and follow the characters and the story of the book. I can sort of see it more. I, it makes more sense to me now. Yeah. But yeah. Sort of taking a slight step back, well, I definitely do agree that seeing something like Jackie Brown mm. or True Romance or Dust Till Dawn mm. or these other ones that he's been less involved in, in a, like a Star Trek thing, would be really interesting. I still don't really see how it's going to no, fit, but at the same time, like talking about Bobby De Niro's character. The one thing that, when watching it today, reminded me of is is the scene with nice guy Eddie in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. When Eddie first walks into the warehouse. Yeah. And Mr. Orange is on the floor, and he's like, he was going to take a turn. He just lost it, man. He was going to kill the cop. The first thing that Eddie does, he pulls out his gun and just shoots the cop straight away, like two or three times. Yeah. And he's like, what, like that? What, this cop? Yeah. And you're just like, 
oh shit like yeah. he was like a, just a really fun guy earlier like yeah, play he was, fighting and he was nice guy eddie yeah nice guy eddie's wearing a fucking tracksuit. he just looks like a looks like a fucking idiot yeah he just looks like a nice guy eddie yeah yeah but yeah, he's just true. walked in and cold-blooded shot this cop straight away yeah and like, you're right that, that he does have the same sort of effect when he does it in jackie brown because up to that point de niro hasn't been violent or that he's getting no. he's getting angry and he it, like there's a tension building yeah but he's just he's displaying it by just grabbing her arm and forcing her around yeah the idea of him just get like the the gun just comes out of nowhere like i haven't even seen him with the gun yeah yeah it's and it is, it is like, and that's what I mean about it, seeing the way that these things are done. I mean, again, looking back with like a modern mm. filter on things like that, you're like, again, like Tarantino's got this weird sort of fetishization of certain things in films, which we can go into forensically another time maybe. But I don't want to sound like I'm kicking it because I really respect him as a director. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it's a really impressive term because we're talking about like, we're having an in-depth conversation about a character who really does very little in this film hmm. and only really serves as like the bumbling idiot side character. Yeah. But because he's played by Robert De Niro, one of the greatest actors in cinema, yeah. it completely skews the perspective again, which is like the, the masterwork that Tarantino brings in. Yeah, that's his whole thing. Because I think something that he's always been great at is casting. Like he always does this thing where he brings back it's good. De Niro is not the best example of it, but like you say, playing against type and adding layers into a character that otherwise would be a nothing character yeah. by having De Niro play it. And similar things like by casting John Travolta yeah. in that part and by casting, you know, Pam Grier and having like, they have like a legend to them that yeah. exists outside of the text of the movie that then builds in and informs what happens in the movie. And that, yeah, the same, he does the same thing with, by using Robert De Niro in this. Yeah. And I mean, conversely to that, I would say that I think sometimes his casting suffers with Sam Jackson because it is like, it's like that point that you said earlier is at what point did Samuel L. Jackson stop doing acting and just started doing Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah, I guess so. Because there are no performances that differentiate from him being, Shouty L. Jackson, apart from Mr. Glass, it were well, in any of the Tarantino films. in the Tarantino movies. Yeah, he's more, a, although, um, he's more understated in Django. Django, yeah, Django and Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight is the same. Hateful Eight is pretty shouty, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because it's so good, it's so bloody watchable. He's like, he's, mm. he's great. Um, but I do, I do know what you mean. Like, he does, he's a bit of a crutch that yeah. Tarantino leans on, yeah, um. But which is like, and similarly, like to compare directors who are like notable style. When you look at like Christopher Nolan, mm. who uses like is like right. So I'll take this guy from this film and put him in the next one that I'm going to do. Yeah, and then he's not going to be in the next one, but someone else from that last one is going to be in the next one. Yeah, and then that person's going to go after that one and into the next, and yeah, then yeah. it just sort of like this weird sort of S shape as it follows through. Yeah, I think that would have been great. But it's, I don't know, but it's so difficult to say with Tarantino because he's got such a unique voice. Yeah. Um, and there's certain, like, there are certain actors who are like, when you give them Tarantino dialogue, they just, oh, yeah, it's perfect. Sam Kurt Jackson, Russell. Kurt Russell, Sam Jackson, and then later, Christoph Waltz, which we'll yeah. get to later. But there are certain, and Tim Roth as well. Tim Roth just yeah. absolutely nails everything he's given in both these movies that mm-hmm. we've talked about today. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So I feel like, Although he does use the same actors, 
you know, again and again, there's a reason why, because they just get it and they just, they are able to deliver this dialogue so well. Yeah. That is just like, yeah, I completely agree. You can't argue with it. Like it, I can't imagine if he got to like hateful eight or if he got to, I don't know, one of the later movies and then decided not to use Sam Jackson mm. for, for that particular part. It'd be, it would feel wrong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, it's, it's like, like, he's um, become a staple of the, yeah. It's like, I was surprised to see that it wasn't Uma Thurman in the hateful eight. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. It's, what was the name? Jennifer Jason Lee was now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, again, that's something that we'll get to another time. Mm. But saying about Jackie Brown, it's really, really interesting because it is so, so vastly different. I it mean, is. Yeah. there isn't that much to say because like the, the direction's great. The one thing I would say about Jackie Brown is, is probably a little bit more so than with Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction has the multiple narratives that it follows. Mm in a non-linear way so it makes it easier makes it more palatable like you said yeah but Jackie Brown is so long yeah Jackie Brown is it's really long it's taken me long. three sittings to get through it yeah yeah. and it's, like it's, today was the only time I've managed to get through it in pretty much one go yeah it's like two and a half hours long and it's like I say because it's completely linear and you're just following this very intricate plot about money laundering and like basically it's, it's she's a Jackie Brown is a stewardess who flies back and forth between Mexico and LA and she's taking money to the um, arms dealer guy who's Samuel Jackson. Yeah. And the whole plot is the FBI or the AT, um, DEA, I think, are trying to ATF. get... ATF, sorry. They're trying to get him, and she's playing off all the sides against one another, basically, yeah. and trying to make her out with his money whilst also getting the cops off her back. And, yeah. and that's it. So it's really intricate. It's all just people talking and going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it just, yeah, it goes on forever. Yeah, and it does suffer from that. I think I, I completely get why people say it's their favorite, or whatever. And I can understand that, like from a filmmaking point of view, it is like technically brilliant and very mm-hmm. well directed and very well written, and all the rest of it. But for me, watching it with a certain expectation of what I want from yeah. a Tarantino movie, it didn't yeah. fill that for me. Yeah, because like, yeah, everything else he's ever made has been constructed and conceived and written and and put together. As a film. Yeah. Because it's got, and it's got filmic elements in it mm-hmm. and he knows how film works and how to play with audiences expectations and, and, and the imagery they respond to and all the rest and the music and everything. Whereas this was originally a book that yeah. turned into a film. And that's really, really obvious. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see how it's played out in mm. that way. Yeah. Because... Yeah, like you say, there are things that you would come to expect from Tarantino, yeah. which you get in the way that things are shot, but you don't get in the way that the film is composed. Yeah, you you get you're like his flair is there, and you can see it in some of the like the when that we get to the point towards the end where you see a certain like the sting, the thing that we're all building mm-hmm. to from different people's points of view. Yeah, and that's where you still feel the flair of him coming in, but it's taken up to that point, which is like two hours. Yeah. before he's been able to do anything like that because the film is so linear and so... Mm-hmm. No, you've got to tell the story because if you don't tell the story, then none of it makes sense. You've got to shoot this, shoot this, shoot this. Yeah. And he can't sort of... Peacock. Yeah. You know what I mean? He can't yeah. show off and do his thing yeah. yet until the end. Um, which is why it felt yeah different for me. But that's not to say it's a bad thing. It's just different. Yeah. <clears throat> Somebody... And this is something that I've tried to avoid saying until now. Somebody, uh, this is a long, long time ago when I was, back when I was studying film, somebody described this as 
sadly, a diluted Tarantino film. Mm. It's like, they're like, imagine like Tarantino films, like Reservoir Dogs, it's like a triple shot of whiskey. Yeah. And then you get to Jackie Brown and it's a pint of a single shot of whiskey. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't agree with it so much because I'm like, there's so much better in there. Yeah. But at the same time, it's probably a pint of weak beer. Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, that's an interesting analogy, that. Because it is, there's so much brilliance in there, but there's so much wasted time as well. Mm. And you can tell that it's adapted from a book because he's, there's un, lots of unnecessary things in there. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is really extended. And yeah. Like you said, if you take out all the things that somebody walking away to music or driving around to music or yeah. parked up listening to music or stalling a van and the music cuts out and then they start the van again and the music kicks back in, <laughs> which is a clever thing, which is, a, again, it's like a touch, a Tarantino Yeah, convention. that's like he did that right back at the very beginning in Reservoir Dogs was the best bit of that when he was doing that Stuck in the Middle with You. Yeah. And he walks out to the car to get the... Um... Perfect. Oh, that's like a... Yeah, again, this is that's why I would say that like Reservoir is your favourite. Yeah, yeah, because it sort of it defines Tarantinoisms for yeah. me. So what, what I mean is, it's the very famous um, torture scene with Michael Madsen, and he's got the song um, "Stuck in the Middle with You" playing on yeah. the radio. And at one point, he leaves the warehouse where the vast majority of Reservoir Dogs takes place, and goes out to his car to get a can of petrol. And as he does that, as he leaves the warehouse, the music cuts out because he's outside. Yeah. And then there's like 30 seconds of no, no music. And then the second he walks back into the room, the music comes back on again. But it's like it's being played on the soundtrack. It's non-diegetic. Yeah. Is that the right? Yeah. Yeah. Non-diegetic. Yeah. <laughs> I always get those mixed up. So, yeah. But like he does stuff like that all the time. And like when things just hard cut or like even like I think was it Pulp Fiction where like the the record skips and they put yeah. another song on. <laughs> yeah. I love all that stuff. I love it. Oh, it's amazing. But yeah, yeah, I think without forcing too much in about everything about this first three and referring to films that we can't talk about for another week, mm-hmm. where does, as it presently stands mm-hmm. with these three, I think yours is probably going to be Pulp yeah, fiction. I think mine's pretty obvious. I think it's Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. But the Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs thing can change on like a daily basis. Yeah. Like every time I think about something, like just now we're talking about that that you know scene with the music. With the petrol can. It makes me think, oh no, Reservoir Dogs might be my favourite, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but then I think of something from Pulp Fiction. I think of, you know, Jack Rabbit Slims. Yeah. Just the whole sequence, the whole set, everything about it. Fuck yeah. Like the fact that like I didn't realise until this as well, or maybe I did know but I just forgotten, but that's um Steve Buscemi. Yeah. He was playing the um Buddy Holly. Is it? Did you know that? No, I didn't. So Buddy Holly comes and takes their order. That's Steve Buscemi with a pair of glasses on and like Is it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um Yeah, and just like Jules and Vincent and the Bonnie situation. <laughs> And all that shit. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It's wicked. Yeah, it is fucking brilliant. I still, th- still to me, it's Reservoir Dogs because it is, it is that immediate reaction. So what, what is it for you then? Is it Reservoir Dogs? Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. Okay, all right. Just because 
Pulp Fiction is so defining yeah. for film for me. Yeah. It is... That's the same as me. That's why it's at the top, though. That's yeah. why... I think I think I definitely would have watched Pulp Fiction first and then went back to watch Reservoir Dogs. I think that might have something to do with it. Because it did feel like, going backwards, it was like Reservoir Dogs was like the pilot episode, almost. It was like the the testing new ground yeah. for the thing that he really wanted to do, which was Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And so that's when it was like he was firing all cylinders and got to do everything he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, because... One of one of the reasons that I would say that Reservoir Dogs is better for me is because it is more stripped back. Yeah, I do love that. Like, yeah, part of and we'll, we'll get onto that again. I'm skipping ahead, but one of the things that I like in later Tarantino movies is the stripped back um, dialogue, heavy one setting scenes, and that he like he started doing that right back at the in Reservoir Dogs, mm. and I get that, but I just feel like I don't know something about Pulp Fiction that's just like. It's the trappings around it that just adds it and elevates it. I think it's because, yeah, when when I saw it, it was like at a time when I was first getting into movies and it just blew my mind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, fuck, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, But yeah, I think, yeah, Reservoir Dogs and Pop Vision will definitely get referenced going forward as we talk about all the other movies. Yeah. Um, But I think that's probably a good point to... Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to sort of call it there. Yeah. So yeah, Jackie Brown, I mean... I would say if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen Jackie Brown, I would go. I would. I would say it's definitely worth watching, but you have to sort of temper your expectations a little bit. Don't go in expecting it to be a Tarantino movie with a capital T sort no. of thing. Yeah. If you go in there expecting it to be all like snappy, like sharp dialogue and like intention building in scenes and cool people doing cool things, that's not what it is. Mm. It's kind of a movie about like you know people having a midlife crisis basically it's these yeah. older people who are trying to get out from underneath you know the the people that they owe money to or you know the and the the crime scene and out from underneath the, the, the authorities and all the rest of it which is interesting unto itself but it doesn't feel very tarantino um but that's not to say it's a bad film by any stretch no, I I do really enjoy it, and I think it is one of the better ones in there. Yeah, but 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 because it's so different, it's tricky to define it as a Quentin Tarantino yeah. film. But like to go from if you were to go from like Inglorious Bastards and then watch Jackie Brown, it would be just like what the fuck? It just would be so you get whiplash. Like, yeah, and that's the thing. That's why I think it was like because having seen them in order, mm. or well, not necessarily in order, but um, having seen. Reservoir Dogs first, then Pulp Fiction, then Jackie Brown. So these three in order, mm-hmm. because the other ones I've seen out of Sing, I think has served it better yeah, for me. Yeah. Which is, and that's the thing because you you've had that picture of what like seven Tarantino films, mm. probably possibly in order, and yeah. then you've gone right the way back to Jackie Brown. Yeah, and then seeing that he can do one, two something slightly different with three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's a bit, I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah, it's strange. Um, but yeah, he gets right back into, like, so the next thing that we're going to talk about is, so what happened after this is he actually took a big break. Yeah. So I think like Jackie Brown was kind of reaction for him. So it was like, because he had a lot, there was a lot of people criticising him. Mm-hmm. 
off the back of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, particularly in terms of violence. Yeah. I'm saying you know, they're promoting violence, they're like glorifying drug use, like with the heroin stuff in Pulp Fiction. So I feel like Jackie Brown was kind of a reaction for him to show people that he could make a more grown up, in inverted commas, movie. Yeah. He, and he could sort of, like, pet, you know, make everything much more realistic. And that's what people, have, like you've said, other Tarantino movies feel like cartoons. This one doesn't. This feels yeah. like. So I feel like it kind of was reaction to that. And then what happened after that, he had like a six-year break where he didn't make anything. And then he came back with Kill Bill, which is by far the most cartoony yes. and ridiculous, to a point where there's even an animated section in it. <laughs> but that's how cartoony it is. It literally turns into anime at one point. Um, but I, I fucking love Kill Bill. I'm looking forward to re-watching them. Um, but that's interesting, again, in that it's another reaction the other way. Mm-hmm. Like it couldn't be further away from Jackie Brown, but there was, there was this six year gap. And so there was this big like fanfare around Kill Bill coming out and it being like the return of Quentin Tarantino, um, with fucking Uma Thurman and Samurai yeah. Sword kicking out. Exactly. Like, Wearing the Bruce yes. Lee game of death outfit. I'm like, fuck yes, bring it on. So that's what we'll be getting into next week. Next week. <laughs> we're gonna... <laughs> yeah. Next week, we're going to be talking about, uh, Kill Bill Volume One and Volume Two, uh, but we're also going to talk about Death Proof. Yeah, so Death Proof is an interesting one. Death Proof is a bit of a weird one because Death Proof was made as part of a experiment, a grindhouse thing that he did with um, Rodriguez, Rod- Robert Rodriguez, and they they each made a movie that were meant to be seen as a double feature. Yeah, and I think they were originally released as a double feature. They were both shorter, and then since then, they, they, yeah, they, they were released. As a double feature, as a grindhouse production, as they as we'll get more into what a grindhouse was next week for anyone that's unfamiliar. But they had guest directors make trailers for the for the in between yeah. parts. Yeah. Um, but then I think then they've since been released separately, and so the version that we'll watch of Death Proof will be the just Death Proof version, which is like a full movie. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that. So it's like, yeah, it's the middle, like we said before, it's the middle era of Tarantino where he mm. just goes balls to the wall, throwback, action, crazy movies. Yeah. Um, which are fun and good, fun to talk about. Um, so we'll get into them next week. In the meantime, let us know what you think about Tarantino movies. Yeah, if you do. If you disagree with us, I mean, we both talked now about our rankings and we've got slightly different ones, but we've both said that Jackie Brown is at the bottom of our list so far. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those who thinks that Jackie Brown is his best film, then by all means write in and tell us why we're wrong. Yeah. Um, because I'm completely new to that film and I'm willing to engage in many a conversation about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and likewise, if you've got anything that you want to add about Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, if you agree with me that I prefer Pulp Fiction, let me know. In fact, if you agree with me and you think Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction is better go on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Now, yeah. if you agree with Tom and you think that Reservoir Dogs is better, you go on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Yes, yeah. to vote so, for Dom, five stars to vote on for, iTunes. To vote for and, Tom, five stars on iTunes. Yeah. Okay, right. So good. to get that right, Dom, iTunes, five stars. Tom, five stars, iTunes. Yes, see? Yeah, cool. So right. very different. Yeah. So get that right. Um, and that's your homework for the week. Come back to us next week, and we'll talk about some more Tarantino stuff. Probably the most Tarantino of the Tarantinos. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Possibly. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye!
lot of people come to restaurants, a lot of wallets. I fucking love Tim Roth. Not just Tim Roth, what I do, but at the same time, like, I fucking love that scene because I always forget. I've seen that film dozens of times and yeah. I always forget. Yeah, that's how it starts. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into it before Garçon, we get into it. Garçon, coffee. Garçon means boy. 